the United States of America. A long-time presence in Southeast Asia, but the regional environment is changing rapidly. Political realities, climate change, digital issues, China's growing influence. Amid these myriad challenges, how will the U.S. fare? How will Southeast Asian governments respond? Join us for Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia, a podcast series by the U.S. program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University, Singapore. Let's begin, shall we? Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode 6 of Engaging the Eagle, exploring U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. I'm Kevin, an Associate Research Fellow at the U.S. Program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. Hi, I'm Adrian I'm the Coordinator of the U.S. Program and Research Fellow. And today, our episode is titled, Seeking Centrality, U.S.-ASEAN Ties in 2023. U.S.-ASEAN ties have been in the spotlight since news emerged that U.S. President Joe Biden would not be attending the 43rd ASEAN Summit in Jakarta in September 2023. While the U.S. has repeatedly affirmed in strategic documents and public statements alike that it supports ASEAN centrality, the absence of its chief executive at the grouping's main summit casts a pall over its approach to the region. In fact, Given how Washington seems to be advancing its ties with individual ASEAN states such as Vietnam and the Philippines instead of the overall grouping, there are questions about Washington's commitment and approach to ASEAN, especially as it enters an election year in 2024. Today, we're delighted to have two distinguished guests with us to discuss this topic. Sarah Teo is an assistant professor in the Regional Security Architecture Program and Deputy Coordinator of the Master of Science in International Relations Program at RSIS. Sharon Xia is Senior Fellow and Coordinator at the ASEAN Study Centre at the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute. Sarah, Sharon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Okay, perhaps we should start with one of the more fundamental questions about ASEAN. What does ASEAN centrality mean? Many parties have invoked it over the years, but is there a difference between how ASEAN considers its own centrality and how Washington envisions it? I think there are a couple of dimensions which are related to each other. So one is really that ASEAN centrality is about ensuring that ASEAN is central in, in member states' interactions and dealing. The other dimension, which is also related, but it's a bit more external, in the sense that ASEAN centrality essentially refers to ASEAN's place in the driver's seat of regional multilateralism. So that refers to ASEAN's traditional or conventional agenda setting and convening roles. So from my view, I don't see a significant difference between ASEAN's and Washington's view of ASEAN centrality. And in fact, I think if we look at statements coming out, both from Vice President Harris, who attended the, the recent series of ASEAN meetings, as well as from the US ambassador to ASEAN, it is quite clear that, you know, when they talk about ASEAN centrality, it essentially means the US working with ASEAN on a range of issues and making sure that ASEAN is consistently, I guess, part of being at the center of, of the US interactions and engagement in the region. So in that sense, I don't see a significant divergence in the views. I guess, to me, ASEAN centrality is quite nebulous. And... 
We often smile knowingly in the room when we are talking to our interlocutors about ASEAN centrality. And that betrays that there might be a certain difference in how they view it. Yeah, so actually centrality, ASEAN centrality is mentioned in the ASEAN Charter, Article 1, Clause 15. Just to quote it, to maintain the centrality and proactive role of ASEAN as the primary force in its relations, as what Sarah said, and cooperation with its external partners in a regional architecture that is open, transparent, and inclusive. But I think that in recent years, right, the difference lies in how each major power actually wants to be the centrifugal force in the centrality, where in the past they were quite happy for ASEAN to be in the driver's seat, as Sarah mentioned. But increasingly, that is not so. Everyone wants to pull ASEAN to its side. And that's what making it very difficult now. When we talk about ASEAN centrality, this idea of upholding it and maintaining it within the grouping and the grouping itself, deciding and pushing forward a certain direction is becoming quite questionable. Hi, Sharon. Can I follow up on, on what you've said? And this is really a finding from you know the ISIS state of Southeast Asia, right? The, the, the poll of experts and it seems to be very gloomy. We have 60% of, of respondents and, and I'm one of the data points, right? <laughs> that you. says that, you know, you know, ASEAN is, is increasingly disunited. Over 80% say that ASEAN is slow and ineffective, not really capable of, of coping with a fluid situation in, in the, you know, this new world order, so to speak. Almost three quarters of respondents are saying that, you know, ASEAN is now, as, as, as you say, right, being a, a arena of, of major power competition and, and, you know, being pulled by different sides. So I, I was wondering if, if you could speak to some of that. Yeah, I think these concerns have actually come to the fore in the last few years. In fact, if you notice pre-pandemic, the concerns about ASEAN, one of the top three used to be that ASEAN is too elitist. Since the pandemic, since Ukraine war, all that has just dropped off the radar. Everyone is now most concerned about the fact that ASEAN, as you said, ineffective. It cannot cope with what's happening in the world. ASEAN becoming an arena of major power competition. And that is repeated by the leaders themselves. I mean, President Jokowi himself said that ASEAN has to be, was it, captain of its own ship or something. <laughs> and that's really being felt, I've belief at all levels, from the more senior to the more junior ranks. And it is concerning. A lot of it has to do with its own unity. So if your house is not in order, you are not united, you can't even agree on how to put out the fire in your own house, then how can you be central to the external partners? It, it sort of rings hollow, right? Because there you are saying, hey, I, I can basically set my own course in my relationship with you. But then in the family, you can't actually resolve some very key pain points like Myanmar, your position on the South China Sea. I mean, someone has actually said um, that, you know, if you can't be relevant to yourselves, how can you be relevant to the outsiders? I think that's really hits to that point. And then over the last few years, we see that ASEAN has had to respond to critical crises like the Ukraine crisis, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and suddenly they are scrambling to come up with a response. And then we hear rumblings behind the background of, oh, actually there was no consensus on the wording in this way or in another way. And again, it sort of betrays that there's no consensus, you know, in the way they want to respond to a certain crisis. 
And it's going to happen a lot in the next few years. I think the kind of crisis situations we will see will increasingly become more frequent, maybe more intense, which is why ASEAN has tried to, or at least Indonesia as chair, has tried to mitigate this by publishing a set of what they call terms of reference for decision-making to sort of expedite the way ASEAN makes decisions uh, at the highest levels. Sorry, Jen, I, I wanted to follow up because I, I think, you know, what you had mentioned was quite evident if we look at the statement or the communicate, the wordings on the South China Sea and other issues were so anodyne as to, again, you know, we're talking about ASEAN lowest common denominator processes. So do you see that changing anytime in the future? I think clearly the most inspirational leadership we all look to would have been this year. It's Indonesia's uh, leadership that we were really looking forward to. The next few years, not so sure what's going to happen. But Indonesia has tried its best. It came out with this Concord, right? The ASEAN Concord 3, which follows the same precedent as the Bali Concords 1 and 2. And in a way, historians have always gone back to say, oh, Bali Concord 1 and 2 set this future direction, very strategic for ASEAN. It's guided the grouping through the years. I guess ASEAN Concord 3 is thought of by the drafters in the same vein. But whether it will become one of those cornerstone documents that we will refer to in the future remains to be seen, really. Whether you know the other member states will actually apply the kind of expressions of political will in that concord. Maybe Sarah can uh, give her views on this. Just to clarify, I think it was ASEAN Concord 4, right? The recent one. Hmm. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, for... So every time that Indonesia has hosted, right? Yeah. I think I, I agree with Sharon pretty much in the sense that I think there were comparably high expectations for Indonesia's chairmanship this year uh, in terms of how it can lead ASEAN forward uh, because I think the expectations for Laos chairmanship next year is a bit, it is not that high. And as for whether ASEAN's decision-making processes or the way that ASEAN approaches challenges will change in the next few years. I am personally doubtful. I think there are a lot of challenges to changing the way that ASEAN operates. And we earlier talked about issues as well, like how ASEAN has been unable to make progress on on Myanmar, on South China Sea, or even on, on the Ukraine. But there's also a school of thought, I think, that believes that when ASEAN was set up, it was never really meant to deal with issues external to ASEAN, right? It was really meant to deal with intra-ASEAN issues. And in that, the sense is that ASEAN has done relatively well, and the Myanmar issue aside. But I guess the point here is that I'm not sure if ASEAN ever had or whether ASEAN has the capability to deal with all these external issues that don't actually directly involve Southeast Asia or involve its member states. So in that sense, I think it's also a matter of managing perceptions. Like, what do we expect ASEAN to do, right? Because if ASEAN doesn't have the ability to deal with them, but there's still this pressure on ASEAN to somehow come up with a cohesive response to those issues, we are not going to end up, I think, anywhere that, that would be useful or that would really help the actual challenge that we are trying to address. 
that recalls to mind the uh, very famous quote by uh, Ambassador Bilahari Kausikhan that, hold on a minute. Uh, yes, it, it's utterly useless to criticize a cow for being an imperfect horse. Although on the topic of significant steps that ASEAN has made, I'd like to ask about the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. That outlook came up in 2019 as ASEAN sought to reframe the narrative of great power competition in a more inclusive context. How significant was this document, do you think, and what has happened to it in the four years since it was launched? I believe that the US and ASEAN actually came up with a joint statement about the AOIP and how they wanted to implement it uh, earlier this month. Sarah, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I think to me that AOIP is really an attempt by ASEAN to clean um, its centrality, right? However nebulous the concept may be, all ASEAN member states were equally invested or equally on board. But I think that approach and those attitudes have shifted slightly for a few reasons. I think one is that the AOIP really shows to me the value that ASEAN still has in the region. I mean, the, the Indo-Pacific concept, I think, is, is quite controversial, as we know, right? But the AOIP is the one that still offers the most acceptable and least controversial choice when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, right? So China has also started to acknowledge that, you know, it can cooperate with ASEAN on certain aspects. It has also provided a, a, an option for countries like Korea and Canada who may not necessarily want to explicitly take a side in the great power competition, right? But the AOIP offers them a nice alternative where they can still engage with the Indo-Pacific concept, but without all the divisive connotations that surround it, right? So I think in that sense, the AOIP is significant. But in terms of kind of substantive functional cooperation, I think the, the jury is still out on that. Yeah, actually, it's thanks to Indonesia that ASEAN even has an AOIP. So really, like what Sarah said when it was first discussed, clearly not everyone's on board. And I think the sense is still not... Uh, people are on board reluctantly because circumstances have changed so much in the last four years where you see a proliferation of Indo-Pacific strategies. The US has it, Japan, India and its FOIP, Germany, France, everyone who... Canada... Recently, ROK, everyone who thinks they have a part to play in the Indo-Pacific suddenly articulated their own visions and strategies. So how can ASEAN not have one? So in a way, it's good. Suppose those countries who were not on board then, four years ago, now think that, you know, at least we have one. But it's quite a functional document, actually, if you look at it. It's a lot of focus on functional cooperation and mainstreaming of the four areas and so on. And they've kind of gone in this direction the last four years to try to put more meat to the bones. Uh, and Indonesia hosted for the first time this year an Indo-Pacific forum to try to also build on this document. But I think fundamentally, document has to prove itself to have strategic weight because all of the functional cooperation is well and good but you need to test its metal and put in more of its strategic theorizing the thinking into it. And I suppose you need champions like Indonesia to continue shouldering that burden, to continue doing that work. 
I think it it really remains to be seen how the AOIP is going to interact with the other Indo-Pacific strategies. As Sarah said, China has not once opposed the AOIP. It is the most acceptable document to China. And I suppose that's something that, you know, in a way shows ASEAN's ability to pull in all of the different partners. Inherent in, in all of the Indo-Pacific strategies out there is that there's a containment strategy behind it. That's what ASEAN does not want. So in a way, the AOIP was perhaps one of the best examples of ASEAN's agenda-setting powers over the past few years, right? Of course, you could put it that way. If I might then, I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit towards the ASEAN summit. Why did President Biden attend the G20 summit while snubbing the ASEAN summit? And what do you think is the significance of this decision? I've really written about this with William Chung, actually. Our assessment was that, you know, there's more upsides for the US to engage with the G20 versus ASEAN, and definitely more upsides in its bilateral engagements with Vietnam. Because Vietnam, as you know, is seen as a key partner for the US in the region. And this elevation in its strategic ties is very important. It now actually puts the US and China on par, right, in Vietnam's hierarchy of relationships. So also for, for America, engaging with India is critical, not least because India is part of the Quad, and India is also key to managing the challenges posed by China. And India really is quite interesting, friends to all, enemies to none. And India is quite a good interlocutor for the US because it has been interacting frequently with members of the Global South, member of BRICS. So that's very valuable for Washington. I, I do agree with Sharon. I mean, I think we can all acknowledge that ASEAN is probably not the number one priority in US foreign policy, right, at this point in time or maybe even at any point in time. The US, I think, would, like Sharon said, gain more value out of engaging with the G20 or with their member states like, like Vietnam and the Philippines. But there could also be other factors at play in the sense that President Biden had already visited Indonesia last year for the G20, right? So was there, he may not have seen the need to return to Indonesia for the ASEAN summit again. And I would say that just based on this one absence, I mean, the optics are not good, but I don't think that one absence would significantly change the tone of ASEAN News Corporation. I think we need to look at it, like not in isolation, right? And But although I would say that even if we look at it not in isolation, the, the optics are not too good as well. If you, if you consider how former President Trump was absent at several ASEAN summits, the US also backed out of the TPP, right? So in totality, I think it, it doesn't look good. But I guess the point here is that, you know, we shouldn't be too fixated on this one absence. The White House's view is that President Biden had already hosted an ASEAN summit in Washington. But I'd like to hear your views is that, you know, it is not just about, you know, not attending the ASEAN summit, but President Biden going to Vietnam to seal the comprehensive strategic partnership with Vietnam. But also when Vice President Harris was in Jakarta in her talks with President Jokowi, they were mooting 
the, the possibility of, of a comprehensive strategic partnership with Indonesia as well. So again, you know, do you see then a further diminishing of, of ASEAN centrality vis-a-vis Washington and, you know, Washington placing even more emphasis on bilateral relations with countries in the region to really get around the, the problem of, of ASEAN not being able to get its own house in order. As far as U.S. relationship with the region is concerned, not ASEAN as a regional organization or as a bloc, there will always be a kind of pecking order of sorts in the countries that the U.S. would like to engage more closely with. And it also is a dynamic pecking order. We have now seen following the developments over the Taiwan Strait that the Philippines is now up where perhaps during the Trump era, it was not, it was during the time of President Duterte, Philippines was really not on the radar screen in that sense. But now with the four US bases going to be there and so on, Philippines up there, Vietnam, uh, we mentioned earlier the strategic weight that Vietnam carries. Indonesia always will have that weight as the most populous democracy in the region. And then other countries like Singapore, perhaps seen as a very fair-minded partner for the U.S. And then the rest will be, you know, there will be ups and downs in the relationship between the U.S. and these countries. But as a bloc, cannot cherry-pick, right? (laughs) You have to deal with a bloc as a whole. So that's something that the U.S. has to sort of deal with. You have that one special summit. You had the sunny lens. And then suddenly, nothing. There was an expectation that there would be some form of institutionalization of a regular sort of meeting uh, with the US, but it didn't happen. But I guess, yeah, this is how the US ASEAN cookie crumbles. We have to be realistic and accept it as it is, particularly as each administration comes and goes. And we're going to see the next elections, November 2024, when we see a change of administration. And there again, we will see that the relationship might have different overtones. I suppose we were quite spoiled during President Obama. We had eight years. He never skipped one summit except for one time when there was a government shutdown. And then it was a sudden, boom, a, a dip where Trump only attended one East Asia plenary, I believe. And then when the next Democrat president came out along, we were all like, oh, hopes up, <laughs> maybe he'll keep coming. And that's where, you know, we have to get into this active managing of expectations within the ASEAN bloc. Priorities will always shift, and I don't think that ASEAN will always be at the top, or never have been at the top. I correct myself. Um, but I see more as, from Washington's view, I suppose, there are things that it believes it, it needs to do. So basically relations that it feels needs to be strengthened at the bilateral level, right, to address the challenges in the region. Um, and these would probably serve quite different objectives and goals from its engagement with ASEAN as a bloc or, or as a whole. So I don't see it as mutually exclusive. But whether those bilateral ties will come at the expense of US engagement with ASEAN I don't think so as well. I mean, I think that the strategies are there already, right? 
So it's not like if the US improves relations with Vietnam, then it will it, it will engage less with ASEAN as a bloc. Um, but I think they are driven by probably different considerations and, and different goals. Yeah, I guess every country can do bilateral and multilateral. You have to chew gum and yes. walk at the same time. That's the whole yeah. It's been suggested that the US should signal that it will send the vice president to attend the East Asia summit as a baseline of official representation rather than promising and failing to send the president. What do you think of this idea? So correct me if I'm wrong, Sharon, but I think in the ASEAN-US Comprehensive Strategic Partnership, there was a line in there that said that the US committed to maintaining highest level attendance at the ASEAN-US and East Asia summit, right? So this was issued in 2022. So I, I suppose if the representation switches to the vice president, that's basically one KPI in, in the strategic partnership that is not being met like immediately. I mean but but beyond that, I think initially it will be a disappointment for ASEAN. But I go back to my earlier point in the sense that, you know, other than representation in the EAS, you know, there are many other things that are being done in the ASEAN US relationship on um, other kinds of cooperation and we shouldn't neglect those things. Actually, it's not about matching protocol standards. It's quite childish then to say tit for tat. You send this level, then I'll send this. I'll match you for for that. But what real effect will it have on the conversations that you have at the ES? I think it would just simply make it easier for ASEAN to then move closer and caucus with China, because that's always been the premier has always been attending the ASEAN summit. And many smaller states, as I mentioned in the US's calculations, do already enjoy the kind of opportunity to interact with the U.S. at the highest levels because simply they're not invited, right? Or they don't have that kind of relationship. So the ASEAN Summit actually for the U.S. as a policymaker, if I'm there, it'd be actually quite a good way to engage with everyone all at once at the highest political levels without having to go through this headache of thinking, deciding whether I should host a bilateral visit, will it be a state visit, official visit, working visit, you know, there are so many levels. And as Sarah said, yeah, it's definitely a KPI, although, I mean, not binding in that sense. But it's really it's a signal, right, of that goodwill towards ASEAN. Too late lah. No more bias remorse, sorry. <laughs> it's already signed in 2022. <laughs> Actually, Sharon, you bring up a good point. The ASEAN summits and related summitry, they are a very good opportunity for leaders of different countries, sometimes countries that are adversaries to meet and to have dialogues together. On a related note, what other do you think are the prospects for Chinese President Xi Jinping and President Biden meeting this year? Because there are signs that President Xi might skip the APEC summit in San Francisco, having already missed the G20 summit. Yeah, I think the sensing out there is that President Xi may not go. There are certain domestic preoccupations and challenges that he has to look to. There's also the sensing that in order for him to go, some incentives must be made or some concessions. So I don't know, I, I won't bet my last dollar that he will go. It's still up in the air. There's still some time before the APEC summit. But if he doesn't go, it's really a miss because as you know, the US-China relationship is the most important relationship in the world today. And we are all, especially in this region, wanting to see the two sides communicate at the very highest levels. Yes, they have been communicating at the different levels. In the last few weeks alone, we've seen movements in that regard. I think that could also be part of the process of laying the ground for the two leaders to meet. 
So hopefully they do actually meet. Otherwise, they will only have the G20 in Indonesia to go back to, in which a lot of the statements coming out of PRC, MFA, the White House has always been alluding to the discussion they had in 2022 in Bali. Clearly, yeah, they, they shouldn't miss that opportunity. But I was just thinking, Kevin, you mentioned about how one of ASEAN's functions, I suppose, is to bring together so-called adversaries. And you think that is the way that I think ASEAN's value has conventionally been conceived. But I think the maximization or the utilization of that value also really depends on the parties that are directly involved, like China and the US. Right. So ASEAN is there, right, to offer that platform. But whether they even want to talk to each other or not, that is actually the real crux of the issue. And so I was just thinking, like in the long term, and this is something I've written about as well. So in the long term, assuming that China-US relations don't improve, so will we then see a decline in the value of broad ASEAN multilateralism? So in, in the sense that the ARF, ADMM+, EAS, all these very inclusive platforms, they may start to decline in value. Whereas the ASEAN plus ones may actually become more prominent. So ASEAN-China, ASEAN-US, where both major powers still want to kind of maintain their ties with the ASEAN organization, but they may no longer actually see a relevance or value in those inclusive, broader ASEAN multilateralism platforms anymore. Yeah, so that could be one trend that we may see in the longer term. Actually, that was also a thought that I had when the US had its trilateral summit with Japan and Korea, whereby they will do this annual summitry with the other two partners, where in the past they probably had met the sidelines of the ASEAN summits. Now they have their own. Will it then erode ASEAN's convening powers? But I guess there are, like you said, depends on the end users, right? The end users want to utilize it in a certain way or not. Like one interesting thing is, like for instance, the ASEAN Regional Forum it has the DPRK in it. No one ever gets a chance to talk to the DPRK except at the ARF. And how else then do you reach out to the DPRK? Um, in fact, none of the Northeast Asian countries have their own platform to discuss their own issues. Japan, China, Korea, DPRK, they, they don't meet at any level or, or on a regular basis. So it's still, I think, still of value, but the willingness to use that platform really depends on the invitees. Actually, on that topic, now that you mentioned the summit that the US had with Japan and the Republic of Korea, that brings up another uh, minilateral effort that has gained a lot of attention over the past few years, um, AUKUS. How do minilateral efforts such as AUKUS fit into the US approach to Southeast Asia? And how, in your view, have ASEAN member states been responding to them, either individually or as a whole? So some ASEAN member states had a strong reaction when it first came out in September 2021. And in our State of Southeast Asia 2022 survey, we asked this question about the AUKUS. I would say the views were quite mixed at that point. About 36% say it will balance China's growing military power. But yet another quarter fear that there's going to be an arms race. And another 18% say it will weaken ASEAN centrality. So it's quite mixed. But I think at that point in 2021, when it first came out, and when we polled the respondents in November 2021, there was very little information. People were not exactly clear what was this arrangement going to be like. 
and that assumption was that it would be like an immediate term, but actually it's a very long-term agreement. And some countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, they immediately pointed to the Shonfest, the Southeast Asia Nuclear Weapons Free Zone. That was their concern. So I suppose those were the concerns relating to an arms race in the region and so on. But I think two years later, in 2023 now, with a better understanding of what the AUKUS is and the sense that it's really very long-term, um, it would seem that countries have now kind of tempered their own reactions to it. It seemed to be acceptable now, view of certain tensions in the region rising. I don't think we were going to see a lot of the vociferous reactions that came out in 2021. So I think that the efforts such as AUKUS from Washington's perspective, they are really driven by this fundamental objective to strengthen US alliances and partnerships in the region. Uh, not just bilaterally between the US and the individual allies or partners, but also among the allies and the partners itself. So I think it's, it's kind of a, a multi-pronged strategy by the US to shore up its influence in the region. And I agree with Sharon's assessment of, of AUKUS as well, because based on my own sensing and my own conversations with our regional counterparts, I think the very initial strong opposition to AUKUS has tempered as diminished, and I think there is a sense that AUKUS may actually help to contribute to regional stability. I would also say I think that Australia has done very well in terms of managing those anxieties from some of the Southeast Asian countries through conversations, through dialogues, reassurance. So I think that very strong opposition that we saw in 2021 when AUKUS was first launched have died down quite a bit. But there's always that wariness, I think. If I may then, just to kind of wrap up the conversation, what do you think are the prospects for US-ASEAN ties going into 2024, especially as we enter another presidential election season in the US? What can we hope for in the relationship? I think we've got to be realistic and pragmatic in our dealings with the US, manage expectations on our end, and just do what we can particularly you know, in encouraging them to move back on track with China. I think that's very, tremendously important. Whether we will see President Biden come for the next summit under the Lao chairmanship or not, I think we should not put too much weight on the appearance, uh, so, so to speak, because they will be distracted domestically. They will have other concerns on their minds. And I suppose, you know, engage in other means through other fora, that, that should be acceptable as well. So kind of take a step back and, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst then. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and one last thing. I think the hope is that, you know, throughout all these years, ASEAN-US ties have been sufficiently institutionalized, right? Including in, in substantive and functional cooperation. And so that whether there is a change in, in the president or a change in, in the officials, it won't affect the tone and, and the pace of ASEAN-US cooperation too much. But I think Sharon is absolutely right as well. I think we should be prepared that going to 2024, the US will likely be distracted or the US will focus much more on domestic issues, which means that ASEAN should be prepared that it will get even less attention from Washington as we go into the elections. Indeed, not only that, probably the biggest US economic initiative at the moment, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, that's supposed to be completed by November, but the jury is still out on whether it actually can be. 
And I was discussing with a guest in the previous episode, if the US's best effort can't even be completed in IPEF, then what does that say about US credibility in the region? I, I think you're right. Like, I, I do agree. The perception is that the US has always lacked in terms of economic engagement with the region. Right? So IPEF is meant to address that. But if IPEF doesn't hit it, the target that, that the US itself has set, then that does suggest that overall, I think the US commitment or still falls short in the economic aspect, especially. Do you have any words that you'd like to leave the audience with then? I just wanted to say that the point about being realistic and pragmatic as we go into 2024, I think that's really very important. And ultimately, I think, and I think I found like a broken record here, but I think a lot of it is really about managing expectations. Like what we want out of ASEAN and what we want out of the ASEAN-US relationship. Sorry, that was not a nice closing statement, but I just wanted to say I fully agree with Sharon on that. Not at all. I think it's a very apt closing statement. Because you, you really need to keep your expectations modest, I would say, for the US-ASEAN relationship going into 2024. It won't be terrible, but at the same time, we're not expecting these major groundbreaking revelations either. And you can't always have groundbreaking, something sensational, sexy all the time. I suppose it's like a marriage, right? You have these mundane days (laughs) or months or years. As long as you keep communicating and you keep meeting. I think that's important. I mean, particularly for ASEAN as an organization, the kind of interactions that they have, it's important to sort of put aside your prepared points and go into a meeting and really have that conversation as you, you meant to have, not just read off on points and all that. Having the opportunities to interact frequently, it's very important. So at, at whatever levels. But I think um, building and institutionalizing it at the lower levels with between officials is also very important because it, it gives you that foundation, right? Re- so that regardless of your administration changes, of certain governments in the region also changing. So it's not just the US changing, you know, bear in mind that our region have been seeing many elections take place in the last year, since May of last year, starting with the Philippines and those Malaysian elections, Thailand recently, Cambodia also had a change of leadership. Vietnam had its own change of leadership, no elections, but definitely change of leadership. And then moving into 2024, Indonesia will have its elections. Um, and I believe Singapore, by 2025, November, we will have elections. So all these political changes are happening within Southeast Asia, and there will be one in the US. So if you institutionalize it at the senior officials level, you know, you have this bedrock to build the relationship on and it should withstand the test of time. Right? Yeah. So I think with the US, there are no major irritants in the relationship. It's fairly uh, good in the sense that we don't have a huge issue that we have to resolve. There are just these hits and misses that we feel like, oh, it could be better done in this way or that way. But that, as I said, manage those expectations. Lah. And then really just kind of work at it, work at it and keeping it, you know, going. Thank you very much. And with that, I would like to thank our speakers for sharing their insights with us. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. We hope to host you again for exciting discussions about U.S. foreign policy in the region. Until next time, stay safe and goodbye.